You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's January 3rd. Last night, the White House confirmed that a U.S. airstrike authorized by President Trump had killed Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani just outside the Baghdad airport in Iraq. The strike came less than 24 hours after Secretary of Defense Mark Esper warned that the U.S. could take, quote, preemptive action in response to indications that Iranian-backed militias in Iraq were planning further attacks after violent demonstrations earlier in the week at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Iran's supreme leader has called for three days of mourning for Soleimani, followed by retaliation against the U.S. As we record on Friday morning, this story is still developing. We expect to have some insights for you in next week's episode, but for now, we wanted to share how some RAND experts reacted over Twitter. Ariane Tabatabai said that Suleimani's death is arguably the single most significant development in Iranian security in years. His demise deals a huge blow to Iran's proxy capabilities and its regional policies, she said. Soleimani played a crucial role in cultivating relationships with Iranian proxies, their leaders, and their fighters. His death will leave a void in this area, as his successor doesn't have Soleimani's experience or personal connections. Tabatabai also noted that while everyone in Washington is understandably concerned about the implications for the U.S. generally and what Soleimani's death might mean for U.S. forces and personnel in particular— U.S. allied forces in the region are equally vulnerable to Iranian retaliation. Colin Clark warned that Iran's response could be asymmetric in nature, meaning that it's worth watching the Iran-linked terrorist group Hezbollah, both in Lebanon and across the globe. Clark also noted that this development is fundamentally different than U.S. operations that took out Osama bin Laden, or, more recently, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, After all, Iran is a highly capable nation-state that has the resources to respond to the U.S. strike with kinetic actions of its own. Becca Wasser said that Iran could respond by attacking various U.S. military targets in the region. Geography isn't kind to the U.S. military laydown in the Gulf, she tweeted, even with all the necessary force protection measures. Finally, James Dobbins noted that the Iranian response to Soleimani's death isn't the only one to watch. How Iraq reacts is also crucial. It's hard to believe the Iraqi government will continue to welcome U.S. troops and grant them immunity, he said. For updates from RAND experts over the weekend, make sure to follow us on Twitter. You might remember that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un promised to deliver a so-called Christmas gift to the U.S., reinforcing the the end-of-the-year deadline that Kim set to see progress in Pyongyang's nuclear negotiations with Washington. Kim's gift may have arrived late, but it seems to have taken the form of a New Year's Eve announcement that he would no longer abide by a self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and long-range missile tests. Kim also teased a new strategic weapon that North Korea may show off in the near future. According to Rand's Naoko Aoki, Kim's remarks signal a major shift for North Korea. Kim is now preparing the public for a prolonged confrontation with the U.S., one that will likely involve some form of sanctions for the foreseeable future. 
And while Kim didn't completely shut the door to diplomacy, current prospects do not look very optimistic, says Aoki. Last August, the state of Oklahoma won a $572 million judgment against Johnson and Johnson for oversupplying prescription opioids. With this ruling and ongoing settlement talks involving other major U.S. drug distributors, it's looking more and more like pharmaceutical companies could end up paying a global settlement. Any settlement wouldn't come close to covering the one trillion dollars in costs of America's opioid crisis. That's why it's vital to allocate any settlement funds carefully, say Rand experts. There were more than forty-seven thousand opioid-related overdose deaths in the U.S. in 2017. Settlement money should be spent in areas that research shows will substantially reduce that number and help improve lives. First, expand access to the highly effective overdose reversal drug naloxone. Many states and localities already issue naloxone to first responders, as well as family and friends of people who use opioids. But access remains inadequate, especially in communities where there's been a dramatic increase in overdoses that involve the synthetic opioid fentanyl. This is because fentanyl is so potent that it can require multiple sequential doses of naloxone to reverse an overdose. Second, support needle exchange programs and supervised injection facilities. Both have been shown to reduce injection drug use, overdoses, and the transmission of infectious diseases such as hepatitis C and HIV. Third, invest money in effective treatment for people who are struggling with opioid addiction. Currently, of the 2.3 million Americans who have an opioid use disorder, fewer than half receive any treatment at all. Fourth and finally, any settlement money should be invested in helping the mothers and children affected by the opioid crisis. From 2004 to 2014, the number of infants born with neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome increased more than fivefold, and there was a 25% increase in infants sent to foster care systems between 2011 and 2017, largely due to parental substance misuse. Directing settlement funds from pharmaceutical companies in these ways can ensure that those dollars do the most good. If money instead goes toward general state revenues to reduce opioid supply or to pay exorbitant attorney fees, then it's unlikely to help the U.S. turn the corner on the opioid crisis. The Kremlin announced last Friday that Russia has added a new hypersonic weapon to its arsenal. A 2017 Rand report detailed the destabilizing threat of these high-speed weapons. Hypersonic missiles are capable of both maneuvering and flying faster than 5,000 kilometers per hour. This speed would severely compress the response time for a nation under attack. In some cases, decisions would need to be made in just six minutes. This would give nations an incentive to become trigger happy. So hypersonics increase the likelihood of a strategic conflict and decrease the ability to defend against it. Here are the authors of the report in a video discussing how hypersonic weapons operate and why they're such a game changer. The current types of missile defenses are not adequate to defend against hypersonic missiles. Our whole defensive system is based on the assumption that you're going to intercept a ballistic object. A ballistic missile is like a fly ball in baseball. The outfielder knows exactly where to catch it. 
because its path is determined by momentum and gravity. It's a different scenario. The combination of the maneuverability and the speed makes hypersonic missiles unpredictable and extremely difficult to defend against. The faster you go, the more kinetic energy you have. In some cases, you may not need to put any explosives on it. The kinetic energy of the vehicle itself is sufficient to be able to cause quite a bit of destruction. Now that Russia has unveiled one of these weapons, what can be done to mitigate the threat? Back in 2017, our experts said there was already a small window, probably less than a decade, to prevent proliferation. And they were clear about a necessary first step. Russia, the United States, and China, the three nations developing these weapons, should agree to not export complete hypersonic missile systems or their components. You can find the full video and report on hypersonic weapons at RAND.org. RAND's V. Darlene Opfer has seen firsthand how policy decisions affect the classroom. Before she was a policy researcher, Opfer was a special education teacher, and she was constantly questioning why some rules and regulations had to be followed. Some requirements just didn't make sense for her students. This is what led Opfer to go back to graduate school and earn her Ph.D. in education policy. She now leads RAND's Education and Labor Division, which conducts research to help make students and workers more effective in a 21st century workplace. In a new Q&A on the RAND blog, Opfer discusses more about her experience as a teacher and researcher. She also talks about the big systemic changes that could help prepare people for work in a complex future and about lessons she's learned from studying classrooms abroad. To kick off the discussion, Opfer was asked the perennial question, what should we be doing to improve education? Her answer, more evidence-based practices. Quote, we've got a history in the field of implementing ideas or programs or policies because they're popular or because people think that they sound like a good idea. But often, we have no evidence that they're going to work. That's something we really need to change. Since this is our first episode of 2020, we're going to wrap up with some advice for a healthier and happier new year from one of our experts, Wendy Troxell. Troxell recently wrote about something that most of us have experienced during the holiday season, feelings of regret. Regret about those resolutions you didn't quite get to last year, about disappointing family get-togethers, or maybe just wishing that the new year will be different. Regret is a slippery slope for mental health, Troxel says. It can lead to the winter blues and even depression. And of course, feelings of regret aren't exclusive to the holidays. Fortunately, Troxel has three simple, science-backed strategies that can help all of us fend off these feelings throughout the entire year. First, think about what you're grateful for. Gratitude is the antidote to regret. It opens the door to acceptance and appreciation for what we have rather than longing for what we lack. Practicing gratitude also has health benefits. Studies have shown that gratitude increases happiness, reduces depression and loneliness, and promotes better sleep. It may even help with aches and pains. Second, begin the day by looking at something beautiful. Only about 25% of people are true morning people, and if you, like me, are definitely not one of those people, then Troxel suggests taking in a moment of beauty when you first wake up to soften the blow. It could be a picturesque view out your window, 
photos of a loved one, or if you don't have a real-life puppy in your house, there are plenty of cute pet videos on YouTube. And finally, practice self-care. Specifically, Troxel says we should all insist on getting enough sleep. With these tips, we wish you a happy new year and a 2020 that's free from feelings of regret. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.